Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. We're here as usual to answer questions about your practice of mindfulness meditation. So if you have questions, uh, just post them in the chat. For the first 15 minutes, we will have silent meditation. It's an opportunity to collect the messages, uh, collect the questions. And at 15 minutes after the hour, I will be back to begin answering questions. If you don't have any questions, um, or if you're new to the community, you can you can check out our booklet on how to meditate. If you don't have questions, you can take it as an opportunity to stay mindful. You can note the hearing, hearing. Um, or just try to be present and use this as an opportunity to participate and learn. So I will be back at 15 minutes after the hour.
All right, 15 minutes after the hour. So we'll close the chat now to anything but questions. So if you have questions, you can continue to ask them. Remember, we're looking for questions related to your practice, your application of the practice in your life, not speculative or theoretical or curiosity. Those sorts of questions are not appropriate. Most appropriate, most beneficial are those that are going to be helpful to your practice. So go ahead and post them anytime. And again, if you don't have questions, or once you've asked your questions, just take it as an opportunity to practice and participate in the cultivation of wisdom and understanding. It's an opportunity for us just, even if you just think of this as a opportunity to cultivate goodness, all of us being here now means that we are not engaging in evil deeds. We're not killing or stealing or cheating or lying. Hopefully you're not taking drugs or alcohol. If you are, you should stop. Um, and furthermore, we are donating our time. We're sacrificing our time for goodness, for the cultivation of good qualities and good understanding of the Buddha's teaching, which is a good thing. And as our practice of mindfulness continues every moment, we are cultivating clarity and wisdom. So, uh, much appreciation for all of you for being here. We'll start taking questions now. Let's take pain at knee, which causes me to feel terrible. Should I be mindful of the physical pain by saying pain, pain, etc.? Or do I acknowledge my feeling by saying dislike, etc.? I'm not, I'm not getting the video. Uh, if something's wrong at my end. Just a second. Shall I repeat the question, Bonte? No, no, I got it. All right. Well, dislike is more important because it's a hindrance. And more to the point, it's unwholesome. It's a bad habit. And so if there is dislike, you should focus on that most of the time. I mean, most often. Uh, yeah, most times you should focus on that. Only if the pain becomes really predominant would you focus on that. But but the dislike is not always going to be there. And when there's not dislike, then you should not focus on the pain. Usually what happens is you'll note the dislike for a while, and then you'll be able to isolate the pain so that you're just experiencing pain without giving rise to the disliking. And that's a step in the right direction. And then you would just note the pain, pain, until it goes away. When ill, how can we note illness? For example, I can't breathe through my nostrils, and it makes it hard to sleep, which is upsetting. How can we note this? Yeah, so the issue you're having is that illness is just a concept. It's an idea. I mean, it's not 
that's not to say you're not ill, but that's just a abstract way of describing the general um, reality or the state of your your physical um, environment. Really, you know, the the body is your your environment. It's what is triggering experiences, but it's the experiences themselves that we note. So can't breathe through the nostrils would be accompanied by some sort of feeling of being stuffed up, I suppose you can note that. Uh, but, but much more important, of course, note the being upset. Um, not breathing through the nostrils shouldn't make it hard to sleep. It's probably the upset that makes it hard to sleep. The desire to sleep, the disliking of not being able to breathe through your nostrils, and so on. Um, but also you have to kind of change your attitude and any time that you're concerned about it being hard to sleep it's just going to get worse right make it's harder to sleep as a result of being disturbed by how hard it is to sleep or being concerned that it might be hard to sleep concerned that you won't be able to fall asleep that sort of thing don't worry about falling asleep just focus on being mindful if you're mindful all night without sleep it can actually be just as restive if i mean in many cases in truth, better if you're truly mindful, but you know, even practically speaking, for an ordinary person, um, it can be quite valuable if you're just mindful all night. So, have that attitude, and you should find that falling asleep isn't actually that hard. I mean, it's easier when you have that attitude rather than being concerned or upset or worried, that sort of thing. The intensity of hindrances is diminished and equanimity is stronger, especially on retreat. I notice doubt that perhaps I'm not doing it right because it's not intense enough. Do I simply note doubt? Yeah, simply note doubt. But you have to note the equ equanimity as well. There can be a subtle liking of that. Equanimity can be a hindrance. Not directly a hindrance, but it becomes a hindrance when you attach to it. A lot of good things become hindrances because they themselves are not a problem. But um, it's called it's called di bangdi, which means uh, good. Good obstructs good. They're good things, but they obstruct things that are truly good. They're they're not act. They're not truly good. Like equanimity is, in and of itself, not valuable. What's valuable is the attitude that leads to the equanimity that prevents the hindrances from arising. And it's that attitude that you want to cultivate, the objectivity, basically. So make sure you're noting the equanimity and any liking of it, that sort of thing as well. Seeing that in the past I've built up more and more mind states filled with lust, and now I have to deal with it until it passes. Do I just be patient? Yeah, you also find ways to undertake intensive practice, to really train in mindfulness intensively, which is not intense, but if you really immerse yourself, like go to a meditation center, then spend, spend a month or so, um, you'll find that it's it's more valuable than just trying to be patient because the truth is being patient is all you need. But um, easy to say it, it, when we when we say these words like just be patient, 
we're usually not um, thinking of being true. What a Buddhist would say, truly patient. We're just saying, you know, go with it, kind of thing, and try to be patient. But you know, just living your daily life and engaging with objects of the sense and sensual pleasures and so on. It's you're not actually being patient. You're still triggered to, into liking and disliking and partiality and so on. So to be truly patient, you need to really immerse yourself and really be vigilant. Patience is not as easy or as trivial as we make it out to be. So when you say, do I just be patient? I mean, that's what people say, but it's not just be patient. Being patient is like the hardest thing in the universe. It's the ultimate practice to truly be patient. It's called anulomika kanti, uh, patience that is in line with the truth or, or in tune or in touch with reality. Anuloma. Anuloma means the grain. Anuloma is just a, it's an idiom kind of, it's a term. Anu means following the grain. The grain in this in this instance means reality. So when you're no longer going against the grain or against reality by judging because there's no value to liking or disliking, there's, there's no rationality to it, there's no logic behind it. Things are not worth reacting to. So when you see clearly and you don't react, then you have true patience. You're patient with good things, you're patient with bad things. So you don't just be patient with the lust and say, it's okay that I'm lustful, I'll just be patient with it. When you're lustful, that means you're not patient. So it's actually not so trivial. But, uh, you know, not being able to do intensive practice, you try. You try. You You practice whenever you can. Even just a moment of mindfulness is of immense value. Even just one moment. So what, what, what can we say about many moments in one day? Or many days full of moments, one after another? How much should I endure verbal mistreatment from my mother? who tends to talk excessively, and not responding seems to escalate her abusive behavior. Well, you can take the example of Sariputta. Sariputta was the Buddha's chief disciple, which means he was the wisest person in history, in, in recorded history, uh, besides the Buddha. And he he realized before he was before he died that he he wanted to go and help his mother. He he was getting old and realized his time was coming to an end. And so he thought to himself, "I can't leave it. I can't leave things with my mother the way they are. People will. What will people think? What kind of an example will I be setting for others? That would be to people's detriment to know that Sariputta." the wisest of the Buddhist disciples, left his mother uh, in great anger, actually. His mother was, was verbally abusive towards any Buddhist because they had taken her son and she, she was uh, quite irate and her mind was polluted with anger and hatred towards the Buddha and his, his disciples because she had lost her son. She was a Brahmin. And so Sariputta went home, 
And boy, did she abuse him. She just nagged and nagged and, and picked and poked and verbally abused him. And he was just silent. He didn't say anything. He let his greatness speak for itself. Of course, then also uh, the gods came to visit him, and that was quite impressive for his mother. So he had that going for him. But um, as a result of his foresight, we now have that example. So instead of not doing anything, we now have him as an example of what to do. Your mother is uh, someone unique. You know, they don't. They, mothers will never look up to us. Um, not not unless they were to become enlightened and then um, realize that their maybe their children were more enlightened and think, oh, or at least think, oh, this is a senior disciple or a senior, someone who was my teacher, for example. I mean, someone who has become enlightened kind of loses that ego and the sense of pride and, and station and so on. And so they can be humble. But ordinary people, a mother's never going to look up to their child. They're always going to look down to them, not in a mean way necessarily, sometimes. But uh, at the very least, in a, of course, in a superiority way. I'm superior. I'm your mother, right? How many times have we heard that? I'm your mother. And there's various, there's variations on that. Sometimes it's manipulative. Sometimes it's meant to, um, it's, it's a rhetorical tool. I'm your mother. How could you do this to me, etc., etc. But there are there it's not to trivialize that because your mother did something that you can never do for her right she she gave birth to you nine months or something like nine months in she carried you around in her womb that's 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 a big deal and it's a big deal to her as well i mean your relationship is never going to be on equal footing and to that extent you as a buddhist practitioner have to appreciate that you are inferior so just as say a mother who learned meditation from their child or a father would through their practice come to be humbled and and look up to that person i mean in, in a way at the same time the child should always look up to the mother um out of respect for the fact that yes they are your mother so you have no footing to say she talks excessively uh, or she reacts this way or that way. She's your superior. She's your mother, you know. So you have to be humble. That's really our duty, and it's the, the Buddhist way. You're not to try to um, teach her or teach her a lesson or um, fix her or something like that. You should um, You should respond. You should respond appropriately. and. If uh, she gets upset when you don't respond, well, maybe you're doing something wrong. Maybe you're not being kind enough. You know, you have to you have to read the room. When someone talks to you, I used to get in trouble for this. One of my teachers said, you know, you have to answer him when he talks to you. Because there was one monk who was verbally abusive. And he wasn't my mother, so and he was junior to me. He was a junior monk, but oh, was he abusive. And, so I didn't ever feel that that was the right answer. I felt like, I don't have to talk to this guy. And this teacher said, you have to answer. And I was thinking, no, I don't. What is he to me? But if it's your mother, that's something else. 
And sometimes you do have to read the room, and I was probably not always in the right because he did get angrier when I didn't respond, and he threatened to to physically abuse and physically assault me uh, because I wasn't responding. So, yeah, sometimes you have to sometimes you have to recognize that the right thing is not always to stay silent. Sometimes it can be a valuable lesson, but you have to read the room. You have to be mindful. And you can't be, in all things worldly, you can't be stubborn. You can't have rules. Um, the Buddha gave us very few rules about worldly things. I mean, the five precepts, basically. But apart from that, it's very circumstantial. And as soon as you have rules like, I'm just going to not respond, you've 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 lost the plot. You're no longer in touch with reality. You're no longer basing your decisions on reality. You're basing them on view. It's, it's a kind of a view when you say, I should not respond. Well, you've taken up a view, and views are very dangerous. Unless your view is the Four Noble Truths, anything apart from that, you're just going to get yourself into trouble. You're much better off trying to read the room, be present, and act appropriately. And you have to ask yourself, she talks excessively is just your judgment. It's not, there's no such thing as excess. You can't talk excessively. You can just talk. What you might say is she has qualities of mind that are triggering this frequent speech. But that's all it is. It's just frequent speech. It's not excessive. It's excessive to you because probably you don't like it. And... Um, <clears throat> You should change your attitude and just be mindful and and be kind. And remember, this is your superior. This is your mother. And in a worldly sphere, that means something. And Buddhism doesn't reject the worldly sphere. She'll always be your mother in this life. And that gives her some station. I mean, more, especially because it means something to her. And uh, you're never going to help her if you are disrespectful. It's going to, of course, make her feel disrespected, and rightfully so, because she's your mother. Um, yeah, I, I'm sorry, one more thing I wanted to say is, um, I remember Ajahn Tong used to have people come to visit him, and I couldn't figure out, I was, I was amazed, I, I guess I could, it wasn't that I couldn't figure out, it was just remarkable how patient he was with old women talking a lot. There was one woman especially, I remember, oh, she'd come in and she'd talk and talk and talk. After everyone left, you know, she knew, she was very thoughtful and very kind, a very, very loving and friendly person. I really liked her, but boy, did she talk. Talked and talked and talked. And he was very kind and, and, and uh, patient with her. He didn't mind. I mean, he wasn't. She wasn't interrupting anyone. There was no problem, and so I would just sit there and listen to them talk. Sometimes you have to. I mean, it sounds like she's also abusive, so it's not good for her to be abusive. And you know, you have to. One thing you have to. Final thing I'll say is um, the the Buddha said even animals can be mute. You know, it doesn't take wisdom to shut up doesn't stay, take wisdom to keep your mouth shut. 
takes wisdom to say the right thing at the right time. And the right thing is usually very little, but it's usually not nothing. It's, it's not common for you to be in a position to not say anything, especially if you're not a monk. I mean, I think monks have a little bit of leeway there, but it's much harder to find the right thing to say. And you're not going to get that from me. I'm not going to be able to tell you what the right thing to say is. So only mindfulness. Your views are also not going to give it to you, right? Only mindfulness and presence and, and clarity of mind. True wisdom is just clarity. It's not in books. It's not intellectual. It's not figuring out what the right thing is to say. It's just being present, being having a clarity of mind. When I sit to meditate and am determined to cultivate mitta, should I stick to that for the entire session or drop it within that session to go on to noting practice like you taught me? Well, if you're determined to cultivate metta, you should cultivate metta, except that I would ask, why are you determined to cultivate metta? You know, I mean, I would question someone who is determined to cultivate metta because it's not the way to freedom from suffering. Here the Buddha taught it, and if you got the time, if you're a monk living off in the forest, you can spend time cultivating it. It's a great practice, it's just, it's uh, trivial. Trivial, it's um, insignificant, kind of, it's not, that's not the right word. I mean, it's not, not enough, right? So why would, if you've got, if you've got a limited time for a session, why would you stick for that? Why would you be so determined? I think you have to look at that part. Why are you so determined to cultivate metta? Because you haven't given me any logical reason for being determined. Like, oh, I have this reason for being so determined. So uh, I would focus on the determination and kind of get, get your, set your priorities. Get your priorities straight. Once your priorities are straight, then you should have your answer as to why you should uh, stick to mindfulness. I find it hard to give up on sensual pleasure because I don't see the full point in it. How should I approach this doubt? Well, you don't give it up. You don't give it up. You, uh, you understand it. You understand it. You understand sensual displeasure. Hmm? Because sensual displeasure is a thing too, right? Sensual pleasure is... Pleasure of pleasure from the senses. There's also displeasure from the senses. The senses displease you. Probably at least as much as they please you. Uh, on average. So the, the, the key, the, the problem is that if you are caught up in sensual pleasure, you're never going to be able to do that. You're never going to be able to see it clearly. So uh, this is your dilemma you don't want to give, you don't need to give it up you just need to see it clearly but if you don't um, be cautious about it you're never going to see it clearly so rather than give it up looking at it, rather than seeing it as giving it up you have to stop um, i guess indulging but i want to make stronger than that you have you, indulging is not really but you have to be you have to put a pause on the indulgence, or you have to put a damper on the indulgence. 
you have to take the time to be mindful, and you can't do both. You can't watch a movie or play a game and also be mindful, right? You're too distracted. So that's the key. The key isn't that you have to give up sensual pleasure before you can be mindful. The key is you have to uh, stop indulging. Or you, no, you have to make time to, to be mindful. You have to make time to practice. So don't see it as the giving up your attachment to it, giving up the desire for it. It's a, taking, a chan taking an opportunity to understand the desire, understand the aversion, and understand the objects of the sense. So rather than giving up the pleasure, you're trying to understand the pleasure, trying to see it clearly. And again, the dilemma is that, well, that means you can't just keep indulging it because you'll, you'll just waste your life. That's the point. When we are practicing metta, is it correct to say that we need to drop the noting in order to be fully absorbed in the metta practice? Yes. When practicing, there are objects coming and going quickly, but in the background and between the objects, it seems there is a knowing that does not go away, even when noting. Could it be the bawanga, and how should one practice with this? No, it's not the bawanga. That's an abhidhamma term that has nothing to do with mindfulness practice. Um... So I would ask you, I mean, it's, it's it's wrong. You're wrong to say that the knowing is always there. And I would ask you, is it, are you always aware of it? Or, and you might say yes, but that's not true. Let me ask you, or is it that every time you go looking for it, you're aware of it? Those are two very different things. Of course, when you go looking for it, you're aware of it. I mean, that's what you're doing. You're, you're averting them, what we call averting, the term averting, like turning, the, directing the mind towards it. And so, of course, there arises the experience of, oh, there's this knowing. You're aware of this knowing kind of thing. I mean, it's not really being aware of the noise. We're aware of some sort of, well, kind of, I suppose. Yeah, you're, yeah, okay, aware of the knowing. Um, but it, that arises. That awareness arises, and the, the knowing arises, the awareness of the knowing arises, and then it ceases. And then you can avert yourself again. No, sorry, avert, advert. Avert is something different. Advert your mind. Avert is the opposite. Advert your mind to the object, to, to the uh, knowing. And then there's the awareness of it. The, the knowing arises, and the awareness of it arises. But the knowing is... Arising, the thing about knowing is its consciousness, and as you can see, that's coming and going very quickly. But that's just consciousness. There's eye consciousness, there's ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind consciousness. Sometimes it's just mind consciousness, like consciousness of a mental object, a thought even. So... Yeah, those are uh, those are happening, but then the the awareness of it is a moment of experience that arises based on the 
knowing that arose. So try and see that, see the momentariness of the experience, and you'll get a better sense of the impermanence of it. Bawanga has nothing to do with that. It's just an Abhidhamma term. You shouldn't really concern yourself with Bawanga. Bawanga refers to the moments in between experience. For the most part, that's what it means. Before you advert, not avert, advert to the object, there's a Bawanga, which means it's the, yeah, it's, it's just a technical term. Don't Don't pay attention to that. If a person has a pledge to fulfill something in the name of someone, but breaches it accidentally, does the first precept stand broken? The first precept is telling an intentional lie. You can answer this yourself. Are you telling an? Is there ever a case of telling an intent? Oh, sorry, first precept. Wait a second. This. First precept is killing. I think you've got them out of order. I, I, I was I was so fixed. I, I thought you were, of course, talking about the fourth precept. I assume you're talking about the fourth precept, but this has nothing to do with the first precept, which is not to kill. No, none of the precepts stand broken. I think you have to brush up on your precepts. How can you focus on the object while saving the mantra? The mantra in my head is too loud and is putting me away from the object, and then there is completely chaos. Saying the mantra, I assume you meant not saving. Well, see, the thing is, that's not what's happening. Objects arise and cease. The mantra comes after the object. Uh, so you can't focus. There's no opportunity to focus on the object. That's hard to see in the beginning, but that's the reality of it. You're always noting something after it's already ceased, sort of. Um, maybe that's not quite fair, but yeah, basically. After it's already arisen, you know, it's, it's already been experienced, and then there's the noting of it. But uh, the cessation occurs immediately, and so you're left at a loss. And that's what makes it hard. Now, there's other, uh, there's other parts to this. There's the need to control the mind's habit of needing to be in charge and needing to force things. For example, you want to focus on the object as a part of this, trying to, whatever that means, to focus on an object that's already ceased, but that's the delusion, that's the idea, is that we can somehow focus on things. That, you know, you can only, that can only happen for something that's conceptual. For reality, it's already ceased. And so, um, so it becomes loud as a result of your desire, in fact your desire to control, your your delusion about controlling, you're trying to force yourself to focus, etc., etc. So you have to ask yourself what you mean by loud. There's usually some emotion behind it, some desire, some aversion. And then the chaos, the chaos is the whole point. See, because that word got your attention. Saying the word got your attention. And you said, you, you went to the object, you said the word, and chaos ensued. What happened? It disappeared. It was gone. And and what happened is it put you in the mix of it. put you in the thick of it. That saying the word was like, oh, there's a fish in the water. I'm going to grab at the fish. And suddenly your hand's in the water and the water's full of snakes. And instead of grabbing a, a fish, maybe you grabbed a snake instead. 
You thought this was an object that you could grasp. It was an object that was going to satisfy you. And then you see it and oh crap, it's actually a snake. And the water is full of snakes. But what, what, that's the whole point, to get you in the water to see what's really there. Because you were under the impression that it was full of fish. You know, this water is full of fish, I'll just catch myself a fish. Instead you caught a snake. And that's the point. To see that the things that we thought were permanent are not permanent. The things that we thought were satisfying are not satisfying. The things that we thought were controllable or not controllable are not me, not mine. We thought they were me, they thought they were mine. And your mind is included in that. And so that's what you're seeing, is this chaos is all the snakes in the water. That's the whole point. The point is to see these things, and then you have to note them as well. Note the chaos, note the restlessness in the mind, the distracted mind, the reactions, disliking, frustration, etc. Doubt, even. I hope that helps. Does the boredom or impatience felt during sitting meditation eventually change to liking or wanting to meditate? I mean, it can, but it's not going to sustain you. The problem with meditation is it's like Teflon. It's not something you can cling to. It's not like other things. Like, suppose you, you, you had a job, and what would you cling to in the job? You, you had a career. You could cling to the money. You could cling to the... Um, benefits to society, you could cling to the prestige, you could cling to the ability that, that it gives you to do good things for, you know, to, to help your, your family or to, uh, you know, to do things, get what you want, etc., etc. Those are all things you can cling to. Mindfulness is, is unclingable. So it's not going to, um, it's not going to reassure you in the way other things do. It's not something you can cling to. You have to you have to change something more fundamental about your whole perspective on reality, on 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 your whole uh, way of interacting with the world. Instead of finding something you can cling to, mindfulness teaches you nothing is worth clinging to. It's 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 more fundamental than that. Like, what am I going to cling to if I'm not clinging to anything else? That's basically what we ask. What what. What in the mindfulness, in the meditation, am I going to be clinging to? What can I cling to? How can I cling to it? And you haven't gone deep enough. You haven't, it hasn't changed you on a deep enough level to where you're no longer clinging to anything, which of course is the goal, right? Anisito juviharati, to dwell independent. It's, it's deceptively simple phrase, but it really is much deeper than giving up one thing to cling to something else. That's what you have to see. So even if it does change from liking to liking, change to liking, wanting, you have to note those as well. They are not going to sustain you. They're not the point. They're not the path. And if you're bored and impatient, well, it's two sides of the same coin. Note the boredom, note the impatience, note the liking, note the wanting, note the enjoying even. Is it problematic to regularly begin meditation practice with body scanning or getting grounded in the body or making the breath relaxing and pleasant before we move on to our core noting practice? So the first one's not so much a problem. 
body scanning. Uh, getting grounded sounds problematic because you're trying to do something. You're trying to condition the experience. Anytime you try to condition the experience, you're just giving you're giving uh, free rein to your delusion about trying to control things. That's not the way of mindfulness. You should take things as they are and be mindful of them without clinging to things. As be, they should be like this, they should be like that. And the third one goes even way further. The third one is, is glaringly problematic because you want to make something relaxing and pleasant. Boy, are you in for... I mean, that's just awful practice. That's just wrong. That's just partiality. That's never going to help you deal with challenges. It's never going to help you deal with suffering. You're never going to be able to understand suffering if you're constantly trying to avoid it by being relaxing and pleasant. Sorry to break it to you, but that's the truth. So, in order of problem, I would say third one, big problem, second one, moderate problem, first one, little problem. And so the only problem with the first one is that's not what I teach. So you're in the wrong place. If you're in my tradition, yeah, absolutely, no, you're not allowed to do that. Why? Just because it's not what we do. First one, if you're in another tradition, go for it. If you're in this tradition, no, that's not allowed. That's not how we do it. Why? Because that's not what I told you to do. That's the only reason. Well, and I, would, I might say that our way is better, but everyone says that. So you don't have to pay attention to that. But if you're in our tradition, you have to do it our way. That's not how we do it. Aren't non-duality and non-self similar? If there is no self, then there is nothing that distinguishes me from anything else. No, they are not similar. Non-self is a quality of all, all things. Is non-duality a quality of all things? No. Non-duality is a philosophy, namely that, um, what, Experiences aren't dualistic, or reality isn't dualistic. It's just a philosophy. It doesn't relate to the qualities of the experience. And they're not really similar anyway, even if... So if you said... Wait, okay, so right. If you if you said that an experience was non-dual, um, well, you'd be wrong, because experiences are dual. There's the knowing and there's the, the physical and the mental aspects of most experiences so they are dual by very nature but that has nothing to do with being non-self non-self means they are ephemeral in the sense that they are not substantial right there's no entityness to them that they are not under one's control uh, that they don't belong to oneself that there is no self that is enjoying them or, or experiencing them, that sort of thing. Mainly, practically speaking, it's about control. It's about not trying to control. So it's nothing to do with non-duality, which is not a Buddhist, not a Buddhist view, or doctrine. But me from anything else, well, me doesn't exist. Anything else doesn't exist. I mean, it's just, it's just not not applicable. But that being said, when I say that, it's not actually entirely true because you don't have my thoughts, right? You don't see my experience of seeing. When I see this computer screen, you don't see that. So it is, we, even you and me are dualistic, right? It's not just dualistic, it's everybodyistic. Every individual is separate. So even that is wrong. I mean, non-dualism has nothing to do with Buddhism. It's not a Buddhist, not Theravada Buddhism anyway. I don't know if other 
Buddhist teachings subscribe to it. Until we are able to see clearly through mindfulness and the unwholesome thoughts, and until behaviors cease on their own, how do we reduce negative karma in the meantime? Well, you don't reduce... Okay, you reduce... Um, you reduce instances of negative karma. So let's be clear what we're talking about, just so that you, you we're on the same page. Karma is something that happens uh, when you do it, right? Karma isn't something that you've accumulated. That's not. Uh, you have to be. You have to be precise here. So you don't reduce the amount of karma that you're carrying around. You reduce instances. Now, this is. I, I, I'm. I'm going to take it that that's what you're referring to. But just to be clear, just so that we're all on the same page, this is what we're talking about here. Is not. How do you get rid of some of the karma that you've accumulated? Because it's not that's not what karma is. Karma is action. Karma is what you do. Anytime you think, anytime you react to something, that's karma. That's even mental actions are karma. So how do you reduce them? Well, you don't have to be enlightened to reduce them. It's more of an ongoing process. I mean, the the, the path leading to enlightenment, in and of itself, reduces them as you go along. Every every moment of mindfulness has blocked or or replaced a potential moment for negative karma. Seven moments, technically, but let's just say one moment. Uh, an instance of bad karma was replaced with an instance of good karma. That's why it's so great to even be mindful for one moment. You've just done something that you never did before. You've replaced bad habits with good habits. So it's not an until before, it's a while. So as you're developing it, you're, you're reducing. When you're able to see clearly through mindfulness, you, have, you don't just reduce, you eliminate. See, that's, that's the, what the goal is, not just to reduce, but to eliminate. So during your practice, you're actively reducing, obviously, right? You should be able to see that, or intellectually understand that that's how it is. Hopefully, as you practice, you can also see it from a first-hand perspective. But that's um, that's how it goes. I get skeptical because of teachings that we know are false, such as the Aganya Sutta, the story of Mount Meru, and Buddhism only lasting 500 years because of allowing women. How do we know what teachings are true? Boy, those are some strong words. The Aganya Sutta is false. Mm, I don't know. That's a, that's a harsh one. That's something that's canonical could be false. The story of Mount Meru. Well, maybe it's just um, maybe it's just that reality isn't quite as. Um, fixed as we think it is it's a little bit i mean i don't know maybe there are some exaggerations some inaccuracies uh buddhism only lasting 500 years that was explained by the commentaries that's why the buddha had instituted these uh, strict rules which uh, invalidated that statement that's why he instituted the rules because otherwise 
it would only last for 500. And as a result, it lasted for a thousand years. But, but that's only referring to the pure teachings. The purest of the pure lasted for a thousand years. We're already in the third thousand years. Buddhism is supposed to last for 5,000 years. So we're halfway there. We're just over halfway there. But we're in the third period, which is no longer pure, but it's called the Sukhavipasaka era, where people who become enlightened mostly do so through um, mindfulness without the benefit of the samatha jhanas. But that's really just technical. I, I wouldn't... I, I think you should... Um, there's a saying that I can't think of, but it's something about separating the wheat from the chaff. What's really important? I mean, why are these things bothering you? Who cares about Mount Meru? Is that really imp important to your practice? Or some of the details of the Aganya Sutta? Or whether Buddhism is going to last for so long? And these are just details. They don't have anything to do with the actual teachings. If you read the Buddhist teachings, you can see what is the core and what is what the Buddha thought was important. All the stories that he told, believe them or not, they're not really, they're not really um, essential. But the Buddha said, "Asare saramatino sarecha asari dasino." One who sees what is essential as non-essential, and what is non-essential as essential never never reaches the essence don't get don't get caught up in the weeds focus on what's important bunte we've crossed the hour and asked every question we're prepared to ask today okay well thank you all for your questions good questions as usual Thank you, Chris, Jim, Sibitsu, and whoever else is in chat helping out. May everyone find peace, happiness, freedom from suffering. Sadhu. Sadhu.